Well, good morning, Four Corners. It's uh, a lot of newness around us. I see, though, that many of you have found your assigned seats. That's good. Some of you are shaking it up a little, but many of you have our creatures of habit. That's how it goes. So we, uh, we gather here this morning, and we thank the Lord for this blessing of a place to worship Him in, a place where we can permanently be housed as a church. The church is not the building. The church is the people. But this place houses us. It houses our gathering on Sundays, our corporate worship. It also houses many of the things that we will do throughout the week as we build up the body of Christ from uh, children all the way up to the older adults that we have among us. So all, all ages being built up in the gospel here. So we're very grateful to the Lord for this place, and I especially want to thank two people, Walt Sellers and Tim Simons, and we thank them because it is fitting. It is fitting to give honor to whom honor is due. It is fitting to praise the Lord. If we praise the Lord for this place, how much more fitting is it to praise the Lord for those people made in his image who have made this place possible? So we don't make the place about people, We don't make our service about people, but we praise God for his gifts of people. And two of those who have been most instrumental in making this day possible, in this place possible, are Walt Sellers and Tim Simon. So we praise God for you two brothers. We're thankful for the gift that you are to our church. You know, as you walked in, the door there, you saw over on your left the vision for the church, and it's posted there in four frames. And I want to thank the hospitality team for all the decorative things that they've done. And they, they put that there. And it's a reminder that, yes, we, we have this building, but we as a church are, are not going to idolize this place. God could take this place away from us in a second. He's given it to us. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We're grateful he's given. We pray he won't take away, but he could. And we know that the church is not about this Place It is about the people, and it's about the vision that we have as a church to build on his word, to center on Christ, to die to ourselves in Christian community, and to serve the Lord on mission as ambassadors of Christ in the world. That's why we exist as a local church. Whether we are at 18 Savannah Street or at Madras Middle School or here on Highway 29 in this new, well, old but renovated building. So we praise God, but we focus ourselves on our task as believers in the world. And it's with that being said that we now come to God's word. As Walt prayed earlier, we gather to elevate the name and the word of God. And so we come to elevate God's word and to sit under it. So we humble ourselves. We bow to the ground in the presence of the Lord as we hear his word and we elevate him. So if you would go with me to Genesis chapter 38. That's where we will be today. Genesis chapter 38. Yes, we are continuing our series on Genesis. And we are in the latter part of the book. A couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the last major section of Genesis. And I think the last major section of Genesis is probably the most 
famous portion of Genesis, apart from the creation narrative. Obviously, when you think of the book of Genesis, you think of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we spent quite a a bit of time. I, I looked back, we spent, I think, the first five or six months in Genesis just in those three chapters. So that's what comes to mind first. But I think of uh, equally well-known is what we find at the end of the book, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, and that is the story of Joseph in Egypt. And just to set that up a little bit for all of us, some of you may be visiting with us today, some of you maybe have missed a few Sundays or haven't been listening to uh, the sermon. So just to set that up for you a little bit, there are three patriarchs or fathers of God's people in the Old Testament. The Jewish nation, the people of faith, the people of God's covenant. And those three patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the third patriarch, Jacob, we know, has 12 Sons, and that is by four different wives. And if that strikes you out of left field, it should. It's quite strange. You can go back and listen to how that all developed. But Jacob has 12 sons by four different wives. And among these 12 sons, Joseph is his father's favorite. So it's the favorite son of Jacob, the patriarch that we are looking at as we come into this final portion of the book of Genesis. He is the youngest son as far as the grown-up sons are concerned. Uh, He's still a teenager, but uh, his younger brother Benjamin is kind of still in the home. So he really is, functionally speaking, he's the youngest of the sons. And yet he is the oldest of Rachel. Rachel has two sons. She's the last to conceive. She's Jacob's beloved wife, and she's the last to conceive. The Lord makes her barren so that he can elevate Leah, who is the despised wife. Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah, so God opens Leah's womb in his compassion, and he closes Rachel's womb. But towards the end, Rachel does conceive, and she has two sons. Joseph is her oldest, and then she has Benjamin. And we remember that she died when she gave birth to Benjamin. And when Joseph is 17 years old, there are three things that happen, which we looked at in chapter 37. So I want to go through these briefly just to set up what we're going to look at today. Three things that happen in chapter 37 to Joseph when he is 17. First, his father gives him a special robe. Now you would think, why in the world is this important? His dad gave him a piece of clothing. How is that significant? Well, this robe that his father gives him is a symbol of the favoritism that is in Jacob towards his son, Joseph. And it brings about, as we read in chapter 37, much hatred from these brothers. These brothers grow to hate their younger brother, Joseph, because he's dad's favorite. And every time they look at him, they see this robe, an ornamented robe, a robe of many colors, a robe with long sleeves. It's unclear what exactly the Hebrew means there. But he's got this special garment that distinguishes him from his other brothers. So that's the first thing that happens. Second, the Lord gives him special dreams. So his dad gives him a special robe. The Lord God gives him special dreams. God works in Joseph as he's sleeping, and he has these two dreams that one day he will be elevated, exalted above his 
brothers. An agricultural dream, an astronomical dream, both of which say the same thing. His brothers will come to bow down to him. Well, of course, you can imagine what his brothers have to say about that. Not only is he dad's favorite, which has already brought all of this anger towards him, but now he's saying the youngest is going to be exalted above all of the other brothers, and they're going to bow down to Joseph. So we remember how much that provoked their hatred towards him. And that, both of those things lead to the third incident that we read about in chapter 37 with this 17-year-old Joseph. And that is, out of jealousy and hatred, his brothers conspire against him to kill him, but they ultimately sell him into slavery. And it's interesting, as you read through chapter 37 at the very end, what happens to Joseph as his brothers conspire against him and attack him is they move from slaying their brother to starving their brother to selling him. So it doesn't get any better. I don't know that it necessarily gets worse, but this is where things go. They first are going to, he's approaching them. His father sends Joseph to them. They're out in the field, several days journey. Joseph is approaching and he's probably thinking, okay, I'm going to get to see my brothers. But they're talking about how when he walks up, they're going to just kill him, butcher him, slaughter him. But we know that Reuben steps in and Reuben says, no, 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 just throw him in a pit. We don't, want to, we don't want to shed his blood. And Reuben has the intention of, of rescuing him from the pit later, but we know that that never happens. They leave him in the pit. They leave him in the pit to starve to death. No water there in that pit. But then the brothers sit down to eat. And Judah, another one of the brothers, suggests as he sees some traders coming by, hey, let's not just leave our brother there to die. Let's not be responsible for his blood. He is, of course, our brother. He's our own flesh. So how about let's just sell him to these guys and we'll be rid of him that way. And so that's where the story ends. He sold into slavery in Egypt. Genesis 37, 28. You can look at that briefly if you want to here. Genesis 37, 28. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. What do these brothers do next? They dip Joseph's robe, which they stripped off of him. They dip this robe into the blood of a, of a goat, and they take this torn up robe back to their father, acting as though he was eaten, devoured alive by a wild animal. Of course, when Jacob hears it, he enters into a permanent state of mourning. Cannot be comforted. His daughters, his sons, everyone trying to comfort him. He says, no, 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 no. I will go down to my death. I will go down to the grave mourning my son. This is the state that we left last week as we finished up chapter 37. So when we come to the end of chapter 37, we are expecting to pick up with Joseph in Egypt, right? I mean, that's what we're doing. We're, we're looking at a story of Joseph, and so the next thing we would expect is he's brought down in slavery to Egypt. He's enslaved there in Potiphar's house, this official in Pharaoh's court. We're expecting to kind of pick up and keep going down the Joseph road. 
His father thinks he's dead. His brothers think they've gotten rid of him. But God is with him in Egypt, positioning him and in time, elevating him in order to save the family. But that's not where Moses, the author of this book, that's not where he goes. He doesn't continue at this point with the Joseph story. Instead of moving on to Joseph in Egypt, here in chapter 38, we get this story about Judah in Canaan. It's a little bit abrupt. You know, as you're reading through, you're expecting to kind of continue with this story, and you all of a sudden get this very strange licentious kind of story about Judah. The title for the sermon this morning, as you'll see on the slide here, is The Line of Judah. Now, you might be asking yourself, what in the world does that have to do with us? We're we're reading, maybe you're visiting for the first time, we're reading this old book, first of all, And we're spending all this time talking about it and explaining the history of it. And now you're talking about this man named Judah who lived about 4,000 years ago, who is the son of Jacob. What in the world is significant about him and his line, the line of Judah? Well, before we even get into anything this morning, this is what I want you to see. The line of Judah immediately should bring our minds to the Lion of Judah. In Revelation 5, 5, we read this. Since the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, when we scroll to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, we read this. Revelation 5, 5. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Earlier, Walt read to you how uh, Judah is, is a lion's cub. Judah is depicted as a lion. Why? Because Judah will be the ruler of the people. The kings will come from Judah. David himself, the great king of the Old Testament, will come from Judah, this particular son of Jacob. But even more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will come from this man, Judah. And so this is not, that's my point, this is not just some obscure story of a distant Hebrew person totally unrelated to real life today. If it is Christ with whom we have to deal, if it is Christ whom we seek to elevate, If it is Christ before whom we will stand when we die and when we are raised in our bodies, we are looking here at the line of Christ. This is Christ's story, and therefore it is our story. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. We will read God's word, Genesis 38, verses 1 to 30. And I did have Maggie send out a little announcement letting you all know if you wanted to to have your kids go back there, that's totally fine. You can keep them in here as well. I'm always sensitive to little ears as I preach, but some texts are just inherently mature by nature, and this one is uh, in many ways. So that's the reason for the announcement. Kids are more than welcome. Genesis 38, 1 to 30. This is the word of the Lord. It is perfect and profitable. 
It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kesiv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her, and raise her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the colt? prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. 
When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Peretz. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. You can go ahead and be seated. This is another one of those passages that kind of leave us scratching our heads a little bit. We pray that God will give us clarity and understanding as we walk through this this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his grace, ask for his help as we study his word. Father, you are the holy God, as Walt prayed earlier. Father, you are holy, holy Holy. Lord, we are utterly amazed that in your scriptures you call us your temple. This building is not a temple. We are your temple. Father, you have made each of us individually a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in us. And Father, you have made us as the church, your holy temple. That you are exalted in the sacrifices, as Romans 12 says, the sacrificial service of your people, the praises of our lips, a contrite and humble heart, trust in God. These things are the sacrifices of the tabernacle and the temple, a sweet smelling aroma to you, our God. Father, we praise you this day that you have brought us to another day of life, that you have given us another opportunity to celebrate the resurrection of Christ on the Lord's day. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us alone without guidance and direction, without an understanding of who you are and your purposes, without an understanding of your kindness and goodness towards us through Jesus, but you have given us the Bible. Many people have died To bring the scriptures to other people. And Father, the disciples died to proclaim the truth that Christ was risen. And we have this precious book. Oh Lord, how could we occupy ourselves with anything else? Thank you for your word. And we pray now that you would be with us in our minds and in our bodies, that we would have self-control, Lord, in our, in our thinking, that we would be here, present, that you would help us to understand your word, that you would give us clarity, that you would give me clear speech. Father, that each of us would worship as we see your word, we see you in your word. Father, would you apply it to our lives by your Holy Spirit? We thank you for this time we have. It's a special time, as it always is when we gather In Jesus' name, amen. So three things that I want you to see from this chapter. Three things that we want to look at as this story unfolds. What seems like a a pause or a hiccup in the story of uh, Joseph going through this this rather strange and uh, and a story maybe that we would not want our kids to... uh, to just dive right into at a young age, perhaps. But here we go. This is what we find. Three things to see. The descent, 
the deception and the descendants. And what I want to do is I want to go through each of these and I want to highlight, look at each of the passages that go with each of these points. And by the way, these sermon points are just a tool. They really are just a tool for for us to be able to dig our way into God's word and to be able to extract the meaning from God's word. Just as when Ezra read the scriptures, remember as as Walt mentioned earlier, as as Ezra read the scriptures, uh, the Levites would move among the people and they would explain the word to the people. Now, I don't know if the Levites had points, but we have points. So here we go. And the first one is... The descent. So let's look first at verses 1 to 11. We're going to read that again. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Let's focus on what we're reading here. Don't let your mind wander. This is the most important part of the sermon, by the way. The word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hera. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kesib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went in to his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. Here we see the descent of Judah. Yes, literally and geographically, we read in that first verse, it happened at that time that Judah went down. Do you see that language? Well, yes, he literally and he geographically descends. He, he goes down. But even more importantly, morally, spiritually, we have a descent. The moral descent of Judah. And here's just a quick application or implication for us as we think about this. Notice, before we get into the details of his moral, spiritual descent... Notice what has just happened in the life of Judah. He has just taken his brother and sold him into slavery. And he has taken and brought a lie back to his father. What I want us to see here, this is so important as we think about the nature of sin. And the nature of the human heart. And it's this. Sin desensitizes us to further sin. Sin always comes with a descent. You see that? There is no kind of momentary sin in which it's just irrelevant to the overall scope of our lives. But sin, by its very nature, leads to descent because it sears our consciences. It grieves the Holy Spirit. It darkens our minds. It makes us comfortable. It sows to the flesh. 
And it calls us forward into further sin. And that's exactly what we see happening here with Judah. He joins up in friendship. Now this is a very interesting, the text doesn't say very much about it. But we have here this this fact that he joins himself with this friend, this Canaanite man named Hira, an Adulamite, a place in, he's from a place in Canaan. And we don't get much detail here. We just know that Judah's kind of got this buddy. He's kind of got this best friend, this Canaanite guy named Hira. And not only does he take to himself this, this friend, this Canaanite friend, as his seemingly best friend, but he also takes to himself an unnamed Canaanite wife. Now, I won't go into detail about all of this, but this is a theme that we've seen over and over and over again, right? That the Canaanites are a people destined for destruction by God. They are a wicked people, and that wickedness will just keep heaping up and heaping up until God sends his people from the wilderness into Canaan to judge them. This is a wicked, pagan people. And just at the drop of a hat, Judah seems to take to himself a Canaanite wife. We know how much Abraham desired that his son Isaac not have a Canaanite wife. We remember how much Isaac and Rebekah did not want Jacob, the next in line, not to have a Canaanite wife. But here Judah, just quickly, much like Esau, takes to himself, contrary to everything that God's been doing in the family, contrary to all of that, he takes to himself a Canaanite wife. And I think there's something interesting we need to pull out here for ourselves, and it's this. Notice this man, Hira, being placed here at the taking of a Canaanite wife, and later as Judah joins himself to a prostitute. In both of those instances... Hero's right there in the middle of it. And I think this reminds us of something that we find in Proverbs 13.20. This is a verse we've recently had our son Jake memorize. And Addie, when she gets a little older, will memorize it as well. I think it's a great verse for children because of all the ways they will be tempted as they socialize in the world. And here's what it says, Proverbs 13.20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, we want to be among unbelievers, of course. We want to be missional among unbelievers, right? We want to go where they are and share the gospel with them. Nonetheless, in all of our missionality, we must never forget this, that when we walk with fools, we become like fools, It's not a thing where, you know, you inject yourself into a a circle of fools and you'll be the light. That's prideful. You know why it's prideful? Because you think that you're so strong to stand against the onslaught of Satan's temptations as you just throw yourself in the middle of fools. And that's what we have here with Judah. He's joined himself. His companion here is this man named Hera. And we see he does, in fact, suffer harm as he goes this way with his buddy. He has three sons. 
Three sons by this Canaanite woman, and two of them are considered wicked by the Lord and are executed by him. This is interesting. We haven't seen anything like this before. We've seen God's judgment, especially at the flood, right? And we've seen God's judgment in Sodom and Gomorrah. We've seen how God poured out his wrath. But this is interesting. It just comes out of nowhere. God strikes these men dead. He executes them. Much like Nadab and Abihu, remember the sons of Aaron at the They offer strange, unauthorized fire, sacrifice on the altar, and God consumes them with fire. He strikes them dead. We have something similar here. The first, for an unspecified reason. The text does not tell us why air is struck down by the Lord. He's just killed. And this leaves his wife, Tamar. Remember Judah had gotten a wife for him? This woman named Tamar, and it leaves her a widow without children. Well, then the second son is executed also. I mean, this is not going in a good direction. We've got Canaanite wife, this guy, Hera, leading him astray, and now his first two sons are executed by God. This is incredible. He is executed, the text tells us, because he refuses to justly provide an offspring for his brother. One commentator, Alan Ross, says this is a classic example of gratification without responsibility. What we read here, he is quite happy to take Tamar to himself so that he can be with her sexually, but he's not interested in doing anything for his brother. He wants that right for him Self. Gratification? Yes. Responsibility? No. Kindness? Justice? No. Self-love, right? We all know about that. We were talking, we were talking in our men's ministry event yesterday a little bit about children, and we we're talking about a Paul Tripp book that, uh, on parenting and how when two kids are arguing with each other that, that we tend to go in and, and our go-to is, well, who had it first? Right, And so we're just trying to sort of make sure whoever had it first gets to keep it. But we're not dealing with the hard issue. And what came up yesterday is that the hard issue in those situations are that you love yourself more than him and he loves himself more than you. It's self-love. We, learn, we don't have to learn self-love. We're not born good. Any of us has, who has children knows that. We are not born good. We are born loving self and hating our neighbor. Biting, chewing, smacking, kicking, pulling hair, all that stuff. That's just a little cute, maybe we say, version of what we saw last week with Joseph's brothers. It's self-love. And that's what we have here with Onan. The custom here, which may be a bit strange to you, is something called leveret Marriage. We find it in Deuteronomy 25. I'll just read it to you so you'll understand what's going on. What's this ancient custom that itself is in the law of God, which comes later? Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall, do, shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. The family is to care for her. Her husband's brother shall go into her And take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. 
And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother. Do you see that? That his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And we, as we go through and we read that in Deuteronomy 25, what we see is that God has a concern for two things. One, he has a concern for the dead brother. That his name not die. And secondly, a concern for the woman. That she's been brought into this family and now she's going to be destitute unless this family takes the responsibility for caring for her and keeping her in that ancient society. A woman with no husband, father, children, just left to herself is in absolute danger. So there seems to be, we see here in this family, a thread of corruption. And I think that we're meant to read this as going back to this unnamed Canaanite woman. Why is it that these two sons get killed? I think we're meant to trace this back to this unnamed woman that Judah joins himself to in Canaan. Okay, so we have his descent there. Then to continue this descent, Judah, rather than addressing the evil of his sons, fears that somehow his son's death His son's deaths have to do with Tamar. So here's a father disconnected from the wickedness of his sons. We've met that before in 1 Samuel with Eli and his sons. We've seen that with King David and his children. Detached. Are you detached from the wickedness of your children? When you detach yourself from their hearts, you detach yourself from wickedness in their hearts. Hearts. That's one of the reasons we're constantly in their hearts. We, we shepherd their hearts. But Judah here is, is totally oblivious to the wickedness in the, the hearts of his son. So he thinks that the reason that Er died and that Onan died is because of Tamar. It must be her fault. She's some kind of ill omen. She's some kind of unlucky charm. We have to put her to the side because if I give her to Shelah, he will die too. It's not their wickedness. It's, it's her And it's unclear whether she's a Canaanite or not. The text doesn't say that. So he makes a promise to her that he doesn't intend to keep. He lies to her. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar's daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. You see that? You keep yourself bound to this family, but you just go on back to your father's house and you stay there. And in due time, when Shayla grows up, you know, who knows how old he is at this point, but when he grows up to a full mature age, then I'll give him to you in marriage. Of course, he doesn't intend to do that at all. He leaves this widowed woman bound to the family with false hope. Do you see the injustice? So what is going on here? Why is Moses telling us all of this and why at this particular point? What's the point of this story? Well, let me say it this way. Judah is the next in line. Remember there are those first four sons born to Leah? Well, the first one, Reuben, he slept with his father's concubine wife, Bilhah. So there's a big red X on Reuben. Right? Then Simeon and Levi, of course that happened before. Simeon and Levi, the next two sons, what do they do? They massacre an entire town. They kill all the men in the town. Because one of them had raped their sister. 
You can go back and listen to that. So two big red X's on those guys. And the next one in line is Judah. So Judah is the next in line. And and listen to this. He's the best the brothers have to offer. Do you see that? Do you see what Moses is doing by putting this here in this particular place? Judah is the best that Jacob's offspring have to offer. He's representative of his brothers. He did prevent Joseph's death by proposing that he be sold into slavery. But we read that little thing there about him wanting to profit from that. Who knows how much of that, those 20 shekels of silver he took home from that. But this is the best that the family has to offer. And here's what we need to see. This is the state of Jacob's offspring. We've been in Genesis now for a very long time. And we've been constantly watching God's faithfulness to to all of these promises. I mean, the God who made the heavens and the earth. The God who flooded the whole, yes, the whole earth. Chose one man. And made promises to that one man. That were, that were grand and global and cosmic in scope. Through him would come the Satan crusher. The renewer of all things. And God has been working in this family. The life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now this is the state. See this. This is the state of Jacob's family. This is the best there is to offer. Later... We will see the danger of famine. That that Jacob's family, if God does not act, will starve to death. We are meant to see that as we come later to famine in the land. And they have to go to Egypt. And what has God done? God has raised up Joseph. And they come to Joseph himself. And he gives them food. But then he brings them to that land. They don't starve to death in Canaan. Because of what God did with Joseph. But here we see it's not just famine. It's not just physical annihilation. That they have to worry about. It is also immorality and assimilation. If left to themselves, they will become Canaanites. The same wickedness. We see this in Judges. We see this later. They will become no different than the peoples of Canaan. But God. But God. It's the same thing we get in Ephesians chapter 2. We are sinners, we are children of wrath, all of this but God. And that's what we're meant to feel at this moment. That this is where the family's headed. All these promises seem to be going down the tube but God. While all this is taking place, we read in Genesis 39 too. Listen to this, right after this chapter. The Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian Master, our God is a God who remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. Maybe you, you, you come, you have all of this guilt. Maybe it's something you did last night. Maybe it's something you did this morning. You've been unfaithful to God. You have sinned against God. The living, holy God. You need to hear this morning that he is faithful even when we are faithless. As Paul says in Romans, 
God is faithful to forgive those who call out to him. God is faithful to receive those who with a humble and contrite heart say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Fall on your face this morning before God and ask him to forgive you. He is faithful. He is merciful and abounding in love. He is kind and compassionate. He knows our frame and our plight. He forgives us for his namesake. Because he is good. He is kind. A final implication for us also is that God is, yes, a God of faithful covenant-keeping love. But hear this. He is also a God of fierce, burning wrath against sinners. You must hear that. God is not just playing with you in your sin. He will judge you in your body in an eternal hell if you do not repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus preached that message, the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Repent, turn away from sin. It wasn't know this, God loves you. It was repent. Turn away from your sin and trust Christ because if you continue in your sin, you will die in them and spend eternity separated from God in hell. The good news is that that doesn't have to happen for you. You can trust in Jesus by God's grace and be forgiven. We are reminded here that God judges sinners as we consider Er and Onan. I want you to consider this this morning. All of your sins will be paid for with death. Think about that. Let that settle. All of your sins, every one of us in this room, all of our sins will be, in the final analysis, paid for by death. Either, either your eternal, conscious, suffering death in hell, or Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. One or the other. There is no in-between. Is the blood of Christ over you? If God's judgment were to pass by right now, would he pass over your sin? The second thing we need to see this morning is the deception. Look with me at verses 12 to 26. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat, By his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the colt prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no colt prostitute has been here, 
So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. What I want to do here is kind of capture what is going on, summarize what is going on here in these verses. There are many things to see here, but on the surface, the most immediate feature of this portion of the text is Tamar's deception. And that's what you see up there under point number two. Tamar deceives Judah by disguising herself as a prostitute in in order to receive just treatment as a member of the family. What is she doing? She is basically claiming her right under leveret marriage laws. And it's important to see here that It was common in ancient Near Eastern practice. I know this seems so strange to us. But it was common in ancient Near Eastern practice and culture that the father-in-law himself could serve in this role. So what I'm saying is that if if a brother, if, if a man died, then his brother could take that woman as his wife. But in ancient Near Eastern culture, the father of the deceased son could also take that woman to be his wife wife. And she is claiming this right. So when she realizes that Judah has no intentions of giving his third son to her, she puts the responsibility on Judah himself. She takes matters into her own hands. She has been discarded by Judah, thrown out like trash, and yet he has bound her to be committed to the family. He has essentially, listen to this, this is, this is uh, ironic. He has essentially enslaved Tamar just as he had enslaved his brother Joseph. John Calvin comments on Tamar's sin in this story. And Tamar commentators wrestle with whether Tamar is to be seen in a positive light or in a negative light. And I think there's a kind of both and going on in this narrative. She is claiming what is hers. She is going to perpetuate the family. But at the same time, as Calvin says, I think we are to take this. Those who are injured should not rush to take unlawful remedies. (laughs) That's a theologian's way of saying that when we are mistreated... We should not react to that mistreatment in such a way that just adds sin to sin. And we are tempted in many ways to do that. So Tamar's deception is the most obvious feature of these verses. But there are several other things that we must observe. And I want to go through these quickly. But I want you to see as we look at this entire portion of the narrative with Judah and Tamar. I want you to see these other things embedded in this larger deception. So first, this is of course... It's obvious, a further descent on the part of Judah. So it's difficult to break the descent off at this point and go into this story. Because if everything we read before is a descent, how much more this is a 
descent. Yes, his wife has died, so it's not adultery. I guess you can give him that. But he is sleeping with a prostitute on the side of the road. And Tamar seems to think this will work. So for some reason, she's got a little bit of insight into Judah's character. A little bit of insight into the power of his lust. And so, woman on the side of the road, he hires her. And there's Hera, like I said before, right there with him. Verse 12, he and his friend, Hera the Adulamite. Even more, this is apparently, listen to this, a cult prostitute. This is not just a woman on the side of the road whom he thinks is attractive. This is a a cult prostitute, which means her prostitution itself is wrapped up in the pagan idolatry of the Canaanite people. This is a serious descent. This is where the family of Jacob is going. This is sad. Second, although sin is everywhere in this narrative, it actually ends positively, to a degree, with Tamar's vindication and Judah's recognition. He says at the end, when he realizes that it's her, that, that, that it's he himself has impregnated her, he, he says that she is more righteous than I am. He vindicate, vindicates her in what she did. He recognizes that in a sense, she did what she had to do to seal the lever at marriage and for the family to take responsibility for her as it promised to do. And he recognizes that. And you know, this tells us that there's no sin. Right now, there's no sin for which you cannot humbly come before God this very morning and say, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I have wronged you. I have sinned against you. Look at David. In the Psalms, he's crying out to God. I mean, you read David's sin. It is so bad. What David does The adultery and the murder, the cover-up, it's evil. It is is supremely wicked. And he cries out to a merciful God to forgive him. He recognizes his sin. He has a contrite heart. That's what God requires of us this morning as we come to him. So there is hope in the midst of the descent. And it prepares us for Judah's righteous acts later in the narrative and for the prophecy that he will be the preeminent brother, which we'll come to at the end. So that's the second thing. The third thing we need to see here is that this is another instance of someone reaping what they sow. This is fascinating. Think about it. So Jacob deceives his father, Isaac, with a garment. He's wearing Esau's garment and with goat fur. And then we have the same thing happening to Jacob by Judah and his brothers. They bring a a garment with goat blood to deceive their father. Uh, Jacob is reaping what he has sown in the past. And now we've got Tamar who changing her garment for the price of a goat deceives her father-in-law. The text is trying, the Holy Spirit is trying to connect these for us. And he's communicating to us that that is what's happening in this family. It's just perpetuated generational sin and there is a reaping what is sown. 
Finally, most importantly, we are seeing God's preservation. In the midst of all this injustice, this lust, this deception, God is preserving the line of Judah. Verse 18, and she conceived by him. You know what fascinated me this week as I thought about this and just really, really, really moved me is that this really is my story. In a, that, that I will, listen to this, we will be in heaven in eternity. Who knows how long from now? We will be in heaven for eternity praising God that he brought descendants from Judah through Tamar. We will actually be praising God for this event. Why? Because it was in this event that God stepped in in his faithfulness and he preserved the line to Christ. And therefore, he preserved us. This is our God. This is not a distant story. These are our people. As Christians, we are offspring of Abraham. As we finish up this morning, I want to come to our last point briefly. The descendants. Look at verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Peretz. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. We have already seen, talked about just a moment ago, God's preservation of Judah's line through Tamar's conception. But here we get even further insight into God's purposes. What is God doing at this particular juncture in redemptive history? Well, to sum it up, there are twins in her womb. And by the providence of God, the younger is given priority. That's what we have here. That's what we are to take on the surface from this. Twins in her womb, the younger is given priority. That's the main idea. Zerah is technically the first since he reaches out his hand. And given the importance of the firstborn, the midwife takes every precaution to identify this one came out first. At least part of him. So his hand She ties a scarlet thread around it. But then something extraordinary happens. That little guy pulls his hand back in and it is actually Peretz, the other son who comes out first, technically the younger, but nonetheless, on account of this, the superior. Now, to those of us who are living in this day and time, sitting in this room, living in this culture, this whole business about the firstborn doesn't make any sense to us. We just, uh, I've heard people say who are adopting children that you want to make sure you keep the birth order right. That's the only context in which I have have heard, and, and that's not even a requirement. People do that differently. But that this is just not a concern of people today. The birth order, the firstborn. So something like this just doesn't make very much sense to us. But it was of utmost importance in the ancient world. And as these offspring emerge, God's electing purposes are revealed. And that's what we're meant to take away from this. God's electing purposes. First, this birth shows the election of Judah. Why? Because God is working in the same way here as he did with the birth of Jacob and Esau. 
what God is communicating with this mysterious kind of birth, with these twins, and with the younger coming out before the older, technically, what God is communicating is that this is the line. The same thing that happened with Isaac and Rebekah through Jacob. Now we're getting this happen through Judah. This is the line. This is God's choice line. And that should cause us just to pause. Remember the first point. This is God's chosen line. Couldn't God have chose something better? Do you ever feel that way about yourself? We should. Couldn't God have chosen something better? But he didn't. He chose you. He chose Judah. He chose Judah's offspring. Why? That the grace of God, not the merit of men, might be the celebration of heaven. Not how good we are, or how well we chose, or how strong we strove. But the grace of God, that God freely bestows on those whom he chooses. This is essential to the doctrine of God's grace. God's election is essential to a full and right understanding of God's grace. As election falls apart, grace begins to fall apart. Because when it is not by election, no matter how hard you try to squirm away from it, it has to be by human merit. Second thing we see here is this birth shows God's election of the younger. That his election is contrary to human expectation. God takes the wisdom of the world and he turns it upside down. What humans think is great and excellent and right, God switches that, turns it upside down. The wisdom of the world is foolishness in the sight of God. So where does this story leave us? The faithful, protective, sovereign God is at work. He's at work in Canaan, and as we'll see next week, he's at work in Egypt. And he's at work in Noonan. He's at work in your house in your home. He's at work in your kids. He's at work in your heart. Will you submit to him? Will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would settle rightly on our hearts, that we would be humble as we feed from you. And we pray that you would go with us this week, that we would not forget these things, but that you would make your word a light and a lamp for us to our path. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.